0: We all know that privacy regulations are getting more strict and that many of our users no longer believe that privacy is dead. But for even medium-sized organizations, actually tracking how we are using personal information in our myriad of applications and services is very tricky and error-prone. On this episode, we have Thomas La Piana from the FIDAS Project here to discuss privacy in our applications and how the FIDAS Project can enforce and track privacy requirements in your Python applications. This is Talk Python to Me, episode 409, recorded March 23rd, 2023. Welcome to Talk Python to Me, a weekly podcast on Python. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Follow me on Mastodon, where I'm at mkennedy and follow the podcast using at TalkPython, both on bostadon.org. Be careful with impersonating accounts on other instances. There are many. Keep up with the show and listen to over seven years of past episodes at TalkPython.fm. We've started streaming most of our episodes live on YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel over at TalkPython.fm slash YouTube to get notified about upcoming shows and be part of that episode. This episode is sponsored by Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Check them out at TalkPython.fm slash Founders Hub, to get early support for your startup. And it's brought to you by Sentry. Don't let those errors go unnoticed. Use Sentry. Get started at talkpython.fm Sentry. Thomas, welcome to Talk Python to Me. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I'm excited to talk about privacy. I feel like there was this period where everyone just Gave up and decided privacy doesn't matter either because it was a good trade off for them at the time or they just decided <laughs> yeah. it was, you know, trying to push a rock up a hill that was never going to make it to the top. And so you just don't, don't stress about it. But I feel, you know, like things are coming back a little bit and, you know, we all get to be semi autonomous beings again.
1: Yeah. There's definitely been that feeling that, uh and I think actually it, it a little bit mirrors the way things are going with AI now, right? Where people feel like mm-hmm. the genie's out of the bottle. How do we put it back? Uh, but I think we've actually seen that. Happened successfully with privacy, where there was a long time when you know you would talk to your parents about, hey, maybe don't use Facebook. Uh, I know this happens to me at least, right? Personal anecdote. So, hey, maybe don't <laughs> use Facebook. You sell your data, and the response was always like, well, who cares? You know, I'm not, I'm not doing anything bad anyway. Why does it right. matter? Uh, and I think we've seen very much a reversion to, hey, actually, maybe I don't want my insurance company to know everything about me and my family's medical history uh, type of thing. And people are starting to care about it again. And, and somehow we're getting that genie back in the bottle, which is which is great.
0: The internet used to be, it's this thing on the side. It was like a yeah. hobby or something you were interested in. Like, oh, I'll go on the internet and I'll read read some user forums or I'll search for some interesting thing that I might be interested in. And now it's become all-encompassing, right? Tech, yeah. tech and everything else is interwoven so much that I think people are starting to realize like, oh, if all these companies can buy, sell, and exchange too much information about me, then that might actually have a real effect in my yeah. regular life, my day to day life right It's not just like, oh, I get weird ads on my hobby time off that i I fiddle with the screen like no, this is yeah, this is everything, right and so we're gonna talk a little bit about the laws and, and the rules that are that are coming into place, a little bit of these these changes, but mostly. Some platforms that you all are creating to allow companies, especially large companies with complex data intermingling, to abide by these laws and be good citizens of this new world that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another thing we've seen as part of this shift of consumers caring about privacy is you also have individual engineers or individual contributors or managers or people within the organizations that, regardless of what laws may require them to do, they also do care about building privacy respecting software um, just as the right thing to do. And I think we've yeah, we've seen uh, kind of a general trend in that as well. So that's been good to see.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to exploring the ideas and then the, the platform as well. Before we get to that, though, let's start with your story. How did you get into programming, Python, privacy, yeah. all these things?
1: Um, so I actually studied politics in college. Uh, but my best friend was a computer science major. Uh, and when I found out that in college he was already freelancing working at home and making way more money than I did in my part-time job. I was like, hold on, I think this computer science thing might have a, might have a future. So I, I was just kind of self-taught and I ended up doing some data. I got a data intelligence job right out of school, despite having zero relevant experience or knowledge. And I was told like a week or two in to, uh, I was working on this, this case that we had, and I had to pull stuff from the API and put it in a database. And I had basically never really written a line of code before. And I somehow ended up on Python, and somehow ended up with you know MySQL, and I made it work. And uh, just from there, just fell in love with the really the problem solving aspect of coding and just creating value from basically nothing, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I can just see how that search goes. You know, how do I easily pull data from API? <laughs> well, use requests in Python. Oh, <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: Let's yeah, give this a try. Was, it was <laughs> probably <laughs> something similar. And I think I think I had, I had, had a friend, uh, you know, <laughs> in, a, in a Slack team at the time that was in. know into python or something and i think i just ended up on python and it's been one of the the best accidents of my life now you know however many years later still working with python daily
0: Mm -hmm. yeah excellent and now
1: what are you doing for a job yeah so i'm working at a company called ethica so we focus on uh, privacy tooling for engineers uh, specifically or in uh, a broader sense these days working on privacy tools in general that can be kind of a a meeting point between engineers and compliance professionals, right? So like the compliance team, lawyers, things of that nature, your company, um, trying to build a, a common ground for them to kind of build off of and work together. In.
0: Excellent. It sounds really fun. And you've got a, a cool platform that you all have open sourced. And we're going to talk about that in, in a minute, but let's keep it high level for a moment. Um, I talked about the, the swinging pendulum where it went to like YOLO. I don't care. Internet's fun. It's free. It doesn't matter to Oh my gosh, yeah. it matters. I want my privacy back. I can't believe people are doing X, Y, and Z and not just showing me ads with this. So we got the GDPR, obviously, that made such mm-hmm. a huge splash that made me personally scramble to match, to meet the requirements. And what I think is really interesting about that is those kinds of laws, and maybe I could get your thoughts on this. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a, a problem or a challenge. And, these kinds of laws, you can just see through the veil. Like, okay, it talks about internet company or something, but what they mean is Facebook, Google, you yeah. know, like, they just, <laughs> yeah, they're like, sure. there are five huge companies or something in the world, most of them on the West Coast of the US that are like bullseye, the the the, the sites are on them and these laws trying to apply to them. Yes. In general, outside of it too, but like, it's, it's those five or whatever that really, you know, were the catalyst for this. Whereas, you know, small companies like me are like, oh, well, I have to have a recorded history of an opt in, not just an opt in in principle, but I need the date and a time in it. I need a record. So yeah, I got to go rewrite my okay. systems so that I can have a record of opt in for communications if I have it. And when there's one or two of you at a company, that shuts the company down for weeks. When there's 10 people at Google that I got to stop and go do that, Google just keeps going. Right. And so there's this um, this tension of, I think, unintended harm that that can come from these uh, by asking for a blanket equal compliance when they're really what the laws are written for. And people have in mind are like these mega trillion dollar companies that have unlimited money to solve these problems. How do you see that in the world?
1: Yeah, it's been. So I, I think specifically with the CCPA, which is the California Consumer Privacy Act, they they kind of noticed that and there is actually a cutoff, I believe. I want to say something like revenue or valuation under 50 million. So there is kind of a, a a safety clause for smaller businesses because, like you said, when GDPR came in and it just it just went after everyone, right? Irrespective of, of size or resources. And it was actually more of a punishment for smaller companies because, like you said, if If they come for you, Michael, and they say, "Hey, talk Python, you know you're doing great, you've got all this data, all these people are buying courses, but you're not keeping track of consent or whatever, and like you're you know you're a one or two person team, you know now you've got to stop for weeks, and mm. Google and Facebook they have the privilege and the ability to yeah, they're gonna hire privacy engineers and they're gonna try to do things the right way, but if they could find a few hundred million, it's just the cost of doing business right they 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 are calculating these fines as part of their you know annual spend, and that's just that's just how they do it. Whereas for you, that could be, you know, something that ends your business or puts you in hot yeah. water or, or does something else, right? Or maybe, or maybe just you don't even want to do business in the EU anymore, because it's too much of a hassle um, compared to what it was before. So I think yes, I think GDPR really misstepped there. And it did end up punishing um, a lot of smaller businesses. But I think they've learned from that. They're they're trying to iterate on it. Um, I think cookie consent is a big one. They're now kind of revisiting that and saying, hold on, did we implement this the right way? Did everyone implement this the right way? And I think the CCPA is building on that in a really good way, and we can see there's also a lot of shared language. Um, so I think that even though GDPR was uh, it was disruptive and it probably hurt the people that it didn't mean to hurt uh, at least mm-hmm. initially, that it was still a pretty good base for us to work off of, just in terms of a general privacy framework, and will hopefully get us to a place that's a little bit more uh, equitable in terms of who's being punished and who's actually being. Just like you said, it was like a few outliers that that brought about this requirement, right? It was it was Facebook acquiring WhatsApp and then doing. Uncool things with with access to both sets. So it was things like that that this was designed to stop. I think slowly we're getting to a place where it's being wielded more in that uh, in that vein.
0: Yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court has not ruled yet on Section 230, but who knows what that's going to unleash? Yeah, that's a whole other topic. We're not on that one, but you know, I mean, there's still there's still large waves like that could crest and crash and, and whatnot. Yeah, uh, I do want to come out and say explicitly, I'm not against the GDPR, and I'm not unhappy that I changed my systems around to, to comply to it. Like it's, it's really important to me. Uh, I've talked to advertisers and told them, no, we're not inserting tracking pixels. Yeah. We're not inserting other types of retargeting stuff for you. If, if you need that more than you need to talk to my audience, you go find some <laughs> other audience. Like seriously, I've, I've told them to yeah. go away. Yeah. And usually they're like, uh okay, fine. We'll, we'll, we'll work around it. But, um, I also just want to kind of put that out. There's like a, a look. These rules come in aimed at the top and sweep up a bunch of other people as well, right? Yeah. So I think there's like this mixed bag, I guess, is what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah, there there definitely is. And funny you mentioned that. Like there are I was I was shocked really to, to find out that there are podcasts I'm subscribed to, not yours. So don't worry. Uh, <laughs> podcasts I've subscribed to that I can't even download on a VPN because there's it is just like there's some tracking requirement that my VPN blocks that it won't even let me download the episode, which is yeah it's just crazy to think that, that that's kind of the point where we're at even with podcasts.
0: It's really terrible, and a lot of that I think comes from people wanting to do dynamic ad insertion, yeah, right. They want to go, okay, this person is coming from this i p address in this town, and we have this extra information <laughs> we've gathered from like these nefarious back channels. Yeah. and we're pretty sure pretty sure that's Thomas, and he works in tech. And we're gonna offer, we're gonna dynamically insert this thing, you know, and if, if they, if there's walls that uh, stop that, then, then maybe, maybe no. Yeah. Let, I mean, let me go on one more really, really quick rant here, uh, just so yeah, to mention the cookie, this, this cookie consent, and I'll, I'll try to not be on the soapbox too much for this episode, <laughs> but I, I think right here at the CCPA, the California law, this right to non-discrimination for exercising your rights. Mm-hmm. When I look at the web these days, I, those the, All these cookie pop-up notifications, they're like the plague. They're just yeah. everywhere. Many of them just say, you have to just say, okay, or go away. And, you yeah. know, it's like, okay, well, that's not a lot of control I have. Um, on the other hand, we have a lot of technology control. I have on my network, I have NextDNS, which will block yeah. almost all the tracking and retargeting and all of that stuff. Um, I use Vivaldi with the ad blocker on. And I'll go to these places and they'll say, turn off your ad blocker. And if... if They'll show you the cookie thing, and they'll say, "Turn off your ad blocker. (laughs) If you don't turn it off, you don't get to come in." I think what they should have done instead of having a law that says you have to tell people you're tracking them, and then Mm -hmm. make them press OK, and then track the heck out of them. Right. Say like kind of this last uh, line here in the CCPA. Say there's a right to non-discrimination for exercising your privacy, and say you should be able to have an ad blocker or other tracking protection mechanisms without being punished or blocked compared to the other visitors that would have solved it. And there'd be no, there'd be no need for these pop-ups everywhere. We could just, if as a informed citizenship, if we decide we want to run ad blockers or other types of uh, tracking blockers, we can, and we just go about our business, right? Like that would have been a a more sophisticated solution, I think than making everybody say, okay, I agree. You're tracking me. Let's go.
1: Yeah. This is, yeah, obviously I think it's been contentious, right. Like I, I can barely remember the internet now, despite it being just a few years ago. When and now it's just so normal. You go to a website and you just you're just waiting, right? You're waiting for the other shoe to <laughs> drop, and the thing pops up, and you click the thing. <laughs> Where's
0: the cookie and, thing? Okay, I got it. I got it. it's <laughs> yeah, out. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Is if it in the top little, or
0: the bottom of this one? Yeah,
1: it's a, it's a mini game every time you go to a new website, and you know there are even browsers now that are have a toggle of like just just reject, just don't show me cookie consent, just do it for me type yes, of thing, right?
0: I, I accept them. I accept them. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Um,
1: and, and it's, you know, I, I understand why it was there, right? They want people to be aware of what's going on, but it's kind of like, um you know, EULAs or end user license agreements or whatever, like people don't, like people don't really stop to read if they are informed, right? And again, this is where actually I think the talking about non-discrimination and kind of the privilege of being more privacy where there are a lot of people, right? If you, if you look at, um you know, someone like my parents who, you know, they're going to go to the websites, they're going to see the thing that's like, hey, we, we're using, they don't, they don't know what a consent cookies they have no idea what the concept of tracking on a website is i don't know what the data is actually used for, anything like that. So it's again, it's just kind of an inconvenience that I don't think really increases anyone's privacy, hmm. um, especially because a lot of companies are still using the dark pattern of you can click, yes, track everything. But if you want to reject or you want to only give the required cookies, it's like another step or two. And it's unobvious. And it's like, you know, <laughs> just a tiny little hyperlink text you have to click on. It's not yeah. a big Big flashy
0: button. Light gray on dark gray. <laughs> <Text> <laughs> exactly, or something. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah.
1: Something like
0: that. Hey folks, let's pause for an ad. Remember last time I had an ad for Microsoft for startups? This time around, I asked the AI to have some fun with it just to show you how powerful what they have on offer really is. Here we go. Me. Can you rewrite the founders' hub ad in the style of a corporate executive using too many buzzwords? AI. Sure. Here's a rephrased version of the ad in corporate speak. This segment of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by the Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, a synergetic platform of innovation and digital transformation. As a visionary entrepreneur, you are invited to leverage the cutting edge technology solutions available through our collaborative ecosystem. Our offering is unparalleled with over six figures worth of benefits, including $150,000 of Azure credit allocation, which is the epitome of value proposition in the cloud market. You will have access to the new Azure OpenAI service and OpenAI's APIs, enabling you to infuse AI-driven solutions into your applications with ease. Our dedicated technical advisory team will provide you with the tailored guidance on best practices for implementation scalability, and security, while our network of mentors will provide you with valuable connections within the startup landscape. This program is designed to maximize the growth of your venture with expert support in areas such as product development, fundraising, and go-to-market strategies. There are no funding requirements, making it accessible to entrepreneurs at all stages of their journey. So take advantage of this disruptive opportunity and join Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub today. The process is simple with an effortless five-minute application process, and the benefits are substantial. Transform your startup with the power of AI and become a leader in digital transformation. Visit TalkPython.fm founder's hub, to enroll. Thank you to Microsoft for supporting the show and OpenAI for making this ad fun. So I think we're finding our way still. We're not totally figuring it out. There's There's attempts, sometimes that don't really have the outcome. I think people intended like this cookie consent one. Um, but but there's still, the, the idea behind it was was pretty good, even if the way it came out wasn't that great. At least from my perception. I know some people really yeah. appreciate the ability to have the, those buttons, but I just say like, I'm just going to block it no matter what I answer, is not coming through, so I don't care. Um, but companies have to live in this world, right? They have to live mm-hmm. in the world yeah. where the pendulum is swinging back. And so... I guess, you know, we talked about GDPR, and I don't really want to go too much more into it at, at this point because we, we talked about so much. There's an interesting article called The 30 Biggest GDPR Finds So Far, and it's not updated for this year, but people can look through and see what kind of, you know, it's the it's exactly the companies that I described, for the most part, except for there's, like, some weird ones in here. I don't know if you've seen this article, but there's, like, H&M, this German uh, oh, H&M, yeah. Yeah. Um, clothing company where they, like, filmed their employees and then, like, shared that internally and that was the violation which was unusual but um so these are the ones that people might know go ahead what are you gonna say about that
1: i I was gonna say sorry i was gonna say that a lot of people actually forget i think that's an interesting one specifically because gdpr has kind of different classes of of people it protects and actually employees is absolutely one of them Um, because a a thing that you will see is companies will use internal employee data and say well there there are employees they don't have data privacy rights because they work for us. So we can use their information however they want to be. You can't can't do that, right? GDPR says specifically, yeah, you can't sell your employees data. You can't (laughs) use their, their, um, you know, biometrics for whatever you want to, all that kind of stuff. So I I think it is really important uh, also that H&M got fined for that because it's showing, hey, you, you have to treat your employees as well as you, your customers so when it comes to data privacy. Interesting, it's cool. yeah. yeah.
0: It's not just your web visitors, it's the people that... It's exactly, uh, it's, it's yeah. trying to
1: protect you know, everyone no matter what their relation is to said company. Uh,
0: another one I think that just highlights the the greater subtlety of all of this is this article in The Register entitled Website Find by German Court for Leaking Visitors' IP Address via Google Fonts. <laughs> Are you familiar <laughs> with this at all?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with it. Um, I think it's... I think this is an interesting case because you can see the the fine is 100 uh, pounds, right? Or yeah. Sorry, not 100 pounds, 100 euros, uh, which ends up mm-hmm. being 110 US dollars. And so, I think it was very much meant to catch news headlines, right, and just kind of warn people: Hey, we've now kind of decided the Google Fonts is not going to be great. And so, this is a very inexpensive warning to everyone else that maybe you should start looking into <laughs> if you're using, you know, Google Fonts or not. Um, yeah. I, I, find this very interesting because again it's, it's almost like the cookie consent thing this will ripple across mm-hmm. most websites probably
0: right I, I think people think about google analytics and um some of these other like conversion tracking systems that you plug in you're like okay i realize we're tracking but even like really subtle little things like linking to an image of a youtube video yeah <laughs> like that will like drop cookies from YouTube and Google onto Correct. your visitors yeah. and and all those things. You're like, wait a minute! I just looked, pointed at an image like that's that's nuts. And, and this is like this. My when I read this, I thought, oh, maybe there's like one person that sued this company and they got a hundred dollars or something. I don't know. <laughs> but what if they had a hundred million visitors and everyone decided, oh, we'll do a class action lawsuit and all. I mean, it could explode. Like I think that's why it caught the headlines so much.
1: Yeah, and, and so most of the time it is like with these violations. And this is where it even gets a little bit sticky because uh, individual countries data protection kind of agencies will go after companies, right? So like if you are, for instance, a lot of uh, big ones happen in Ireland, because again, a lot of tech companies, especially like Silicon Valley tech companies have headquarters in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So you see the the Irish, um, you know, privacy authority levy a lot of these fines in yep. some cases. Yeah, although yeah, people criticized them for being kind of lenient. Um, but I think in this case, it was very specifically, you know, for, for like you said, for one reason or another, uh, someone or the government just kind of decided, hey, we need to, call out this Google hosted web font uh, and kind of warned everyone else that, Hey, maybe you shouldn't be using those. I, I don't know. It is very interesting. Uh, and yeah. I do feel like a lot of these go to the radar. I think
0: they do it. I don't even think they name the company that this was applied to, by the way, people, if they're like, uh, but what do we do? Uh, fonts.bunny.net is a really cool option. Uh, zero tracking, no logging, privacy first, you are compliant and a drop in replacement for Google fonts. So uh, oh, cool. people should check that out if if they're like I kind of want this functionality but I kind of don't want it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that's a pretty cool option. All right. So that sets the stage a little bit, but let's let's maybe talk about some of the problems that like large organizations have. So I know that you worked at a large organization where it was like, we have this, what data do you have about me request? Or how do you use my data request? And I can only imagine at like a multiple thousand person company, there's these databases and people like dip into them and take something and who knows where it goes. And then they hook with (laughs) some third party other thing. And then like, it's off to the races. Like, tell me what you did with that. Like, I don't know. I, it's it's it's
1: out. Yeah. It feels like the, uh, Maybe this is too much of an American cultural reference, but like a take a penny, leave a penny, but for data, right? (laughs) Like, you know, you, you might drop some in there. You might take some out. Uh, no one really knows where it went. It's just now circulating in the, uh, the the broader economy. And so with that company, this is my, my last company, um, also a startup and I was a data engineer though. So I've been mostly a data engineer, uh, until my current position and it got to the point where, and this is going to sound crazy. We were luckily through the, through the power of like, you know, snowflake and dbt and things like that. We were able to actually replicate a data warehouse per country. So, like all of our EU data stayed in the EU, all of our Canada data stayed in Canada. We were basically just spinning up as many warehouses as we needed to. Like, so when CCPA came online, we were like, all right, we're spinning one up in California, and then the rest of the US has one somewhere else, right? Um, but it's just obviously, that's just not that's sustainable. Uh, you know, we were a relatively small data engineering team and we automated most of it, but it was very clear that, that became a huge problem.
0: It might be sustainable if it's Europe, US, and other. Right something like that
1: right exactly like two where three, the u.s people australia was was slowly yeah. gonna get on that list
0: yeah <laughs> we're like all right they that, u.s people they get no protections we <laughs> sell them like crazy the europeans will be <laughs> a couple of them and the canadians they're nice we'll kind of be nice with them um but these are we're seeing this stuff pop up more and more like more regionally and it's getting harder yeah. and harder to if, com, that was to the follow, problem right is
1: when, when, it, when it's california and then the rest of the u.s which at the time it was this was a few years ago and so, okay, so we have a, a data center in California to you know comply with CCPA, and then we have a data <laughs> center outside of California, and we're good. And I was like, well, like Virginia just passed a security law. I don't, I don't think we have servers in Virginia. I'm like, oh, like Idaho just passed. I don't, I don't know if there's server farms in Idaho. It's like, you know, it, it became a problem like that where you can't, you're not going to spin up fifty, you know, data centers, one in each. Like, I, I why probably not data centers? Energy is yeah. there. So, but they
0: do. If they, if you <laughs> need to spin them up, you need to do it in person, and it's going to take a month.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That's very true. Sorry, I got a bad um, tan,
0: but uh, the data center is <laughs> coming along. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, so it was, you know, so that complexity, right? So all these different laws. But then on top of that, like you said, putting in the access controls for figuring out where data is going and, and how. So definitely having a tool like DBT, which if people don't know, it's kind of like a very programming focused data analytics tool building models and stuff. So we had a good linear draft of where all the data was coming from, what it was doing. But we still had to document our use because legally, you have to have a a valid use for every piece of data that you are, you know, storing in there and things like that. And so I was just spending more and more time in calls with, you know, our our, our security team and our, our privacy professionals, our compliance team, just answering questions of just like, hey, here's a gigantic graph of all of our tables, all of our databases, just everything we could possibly be doing, like, how does data flow through here, like explain to me how this pi goes from here to here and what it's used for exactly and that kind of as like we talked about before it scales uh sorry it should be i think just dbt that's, yeah dbt yeah. that's
0: the wrong one i know
1: probably happens with i'll all find time. it keep talking um, <laughs> and but that's not really scalable so you again we talked about before this ended up punishing smaller companies a lot more because so if you're google you can throw you can just hire 20 people out of nowhere call them privacy engineers and you know, just say, Hey, it is now your full time job to just keep track of these things and help us stay compliant. But if you're a smaller company, like we were, then a lot of that fell to like myself and the data engineering team. And then of course, the product engineers as well. And so that, that makes it really difficult That adds a pretty large burden to doing business. And after being there for a while, I then had an opportunity to come work at Ethica. And I was absolutely sold on working at Ethica. And they said, you know, we're trying to build a platform that allows engineers to just handle this. Like engineers like to, right? Which is with automated tooling, with CI checks. Um, YAML files. Yeah, with YAML files with open source <laughs> Python code. And I was like, hey, this sounds great. Um, I'm spending most of my day worrying about this anyway. I'd love to just get paid to solve this problem for other people. And that's how I ended up at Ethica. And uh, it's, been, it's been a journey ever since. And I think we're... One of the challenges of tackling something like this is like we just talked about, it's such a broad problem space. So you can come in and you can handle the cookie consent thing, right? But then they're going to say, well, to have a holistic private solution, we also need to handle knowing what our code does and data mapping and DSRs, which you know we're going to get to in a second. So there's actually, it's like this multi problem DSR
0: d- thing you have to data. Yeah. What's the DSR stand for?
1: Yeah, so DSR is data subject request. And that is-, is that like what data think, you have
0: about me kind of thing? Exactly,
1: exactly. So I think um, one that people have probably heard before is there's also like the right to be forgotten um, mm-hmm. is included in that. So that's, that's the ability for me to go to a company and say, hey, um, I would like to see what data you have about me. And so you actually, I'm going I'm to give you my email, right? And that's my primary identifier. in your system. I'm going to give you my email. And then you need to go scour your entire infrastructure and every piece of PII and data you have related to me, you need to get back to me in like a CSV format so that I can very easily see what you're tracking. Um, then you have, like I said, the right to be forgotten. So that is, um, you know, say I'm using BigCo's, whatever email service, and I don't want to use their service anymore. And I say, hey, um, I'm sending you a request to delete all, any and all data related to myself. So I no longer want to be your customer. I've deleted my account, everything with, you know, uh, John at somecompany.com. You need to take that email, run it through your system and delete every single piece of PAI related to it. Yeah. And so these are the, these are kind of like privacy protections we're talking about, but that stuff is, is complicated. Uh, and so. Yeah. Well, yeah.
0: oh, I talked earlier about how <laughs> it was really challenging for, um, small, small companies. Yeah. I think this thing you're talking about now is—it's actually not that bad for small companies. I think it's killer for the medium-sized business that doesn't have the the Google-sized tech team to track it. But right. They've got a ton of people that mess with it and a ton of, yeah. and, ton and of a data, of a lot of complexity, lot of integrations. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and that's that's an interesting thing we've seen is that a lot of a lot of times when people are out of compliance, it's it's not actually because they are malicious and they don't care about people's privacy. It is because they just they, they physically cannot. Um, if you go to someone and say, Hey, you have a hundred thousand, this is not uncommon, like a hundred thousand Postgres tables, and you need to tell me exactly where every bit of PI is in those one hundred thousand Postgres tables, it, it, it's not gonna happen. Like no no one actually knows, right? Like there's probably people that have left that maybe new, and now there's some dangling Postgres database out there in AWS somewhere that has PI they don't even know about, right? Just doesn't even show up on their maps anymore. And that's the biggest challenge, is that it's not um, it's not people you know, doing things out of malice it is, it is purely the technical scale of the, of the problem is just huge. And again, like I said, even Google with an army of privacy engineers or, or Meta with an army of privacy engineers, they still get fined all the time because it's just not really possible to catch everything manually at that scale. And that's what most people are still trying to do is to do everything manually.
0: This portion of Talk Python to Me is brought to you by Sentry. Is your Python application fast? Or does it sometimes suffer from slowdowns and unexpected latency? Does this usually only happen in production? It's really tough to track down the problems at that point, isn't it? If you've looked at APM, application performance monitoring products before, they may have felt out of place for software teams. Many of them are more focused on legacy problems made for ops and infrastructure teams to keep their infrastructure and services up and running. Sentry has just launched their new APM service. And Sentry's approach to application monitoring is focused on being actionable, affordable, and actually built for developers. Whether it's a slow-running query or latent payment endpoint that's at risk of timing out and causing sales to tank, Sentry removes the complexity and does the analysis for you, surfacing the most critical performance issues so you can address them immediately. Most legacy APM tools focus on an ingest-everything approach, resulting in high storage costs, noisy environments, and an enormous amount of telemetry data most developers will never need to analyze. Sentry has taken a different approach, building the most affordable APM solution in the market. They've removed the noise and extract the maximum value out of your performance data while passing the savings directly on to you, especially for TalkPython listeners who use the code TALKPYTHON. So get started at TalkPython.fm Sentry, and be sure to use their code, TalkPython, all lowercase, so you let them know that you heard about them from us. My thanks to Sentry for keeping this podcast going strong. What about bad actors? And by that, I mean, there are companies that try to do the right thing, like mine. You can go to the the (laughs) Courses website and there, I spent a lot of this part of that two weeks. There's a button, download everything you know about me. And there's a nuke my account, completely wipe me off the face of the earth as far as you're concerned. And to my knowledge, those are totally accurate and sufficient. However, what if there's a company that says, here's all the data I have with you and here's the places I share it. And they leave out the the three most important and dangerous (laughs) ones. Like, do you know what recourse there is? Because it looks like uh, they're complying. It looks like I requested the thing they gave it to me. I asked it to be deleted. They did, except right. for in that that dark market where they're they're selling it to shadow brokers for ad data and credit card mix-ins, and that's way more valuable. We'll keep that.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- this comes down to somehow they would just have to get found out. There would have to be an internal whistleblower. Um, there would have to be mm, an investigation. There would have to be you know some kind of audit because they do, as part of GDPR, you are required to submit things like a data map, which we'll talk about in a little bit, which is basically. You know where is data going? Um, what is our valid use for said data, and all that kinds of stuff. Um, but like you said, if there's a truly bad actor that is, you know, leaving things out of reports on purpose and not letting customers know that they're doing certain things with their data, I'm actually not sure how that would get yeah. kind of discovered. Yeah, I think you're right. right. Maybe now. a
0: whistleblower, or you know, maybe somebody says, "There's no way this data got over there without going through there," and so I'm, I'm right. Gonna, exactly. I'm, I'm going to try to get some legal recourse to like make you show us, make you yeah. testify, at least lie under oath. <laughs> instead of lie yeah, to and, EULA.
1: And even this was, this actually was a big sticking point recently. Um, Florida is also, uh, you know, working on their own privacy law and a, a big sticking point that I believe made it not go through was that they could not agree on whether Individual citizens should be allowed to sue companies for data misuse service should be purely the, something yeah. the government handles. And I think that's that's an interesting it, thing it's, to think about.
0: It is. It's one of those things that sounds amazing. Like, yes, sure. If you're abusing, you know, company X is abusing Thomas, Thomas should have some direct recourse, but you could easily destroy a company just by going like, let's get 50 yeah. people to all. Like, here's your cookie cutter letter that we send over <laughs> as part of the legal process and, you know, just knock them offline, right? Knock them out a business. So I... I can see both sides all over again. All right. So I yeah. kind of derailed you. We were talking about like the types of things that these medium scale organizations like really get hung up on and you touched on some, but
1: yeah. So sorry, let me, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go back. So number one is just the, the, the largest issue that we see and this scale is actually anywhere from medium to large, right? Even with Google and, you know, probably a like Twitter size, you know, kind of the thing, I would also bet really good money. There's no one there that really knows where everything is. It's just it's just too much to to handle manually or within people's heads. So the number one problem is that people don't know where their data is. That's a huge issue. Uh, the number two problem is even if they know where all that data is, right? theoretically in a perfect world, if someone gives you an email and says, hey, you need to delete uh, this email across all of your tables and go, okay, I know we have this email and this PI in a hundred tables and in three different APIs that we use, because we use whatever Zendesk and Salesforce. Okay, so now you've got that information in a perfect world, how do you actually execute that? Like there are plenty of companies that have someone on staff full time that just fulfills these DSRs and right to be forgotten and things like that. So it is not really efficient to say, okay, I've now got to manually go run SQL queries in a hundred different, you know, database tables or a hundred different databases. I've now got to log into three different APIs and it's just it's not, it's again, not doable in an automated, you know, you, you need to automate it. Um, so even if you know where everything is, how do you automate that? So that's another problem we, uh, we're trying to solve. And then finally, it's the data mapping piece, right? So you need to understand, you not, not only need to know where your data is, you need to know what type of data is and why you have it. And that's really difficult because maybe three years ago, I did some proof of concept where I was grabbing people's. Uh, addresses and trying to figure out a, a way to find cheaper shipping for our e-commerce website, right. and whatever the table's still there. And so then three years later, someone comes and says, "Hey, I found all this PI in this database. Like, why did we collect this? Like, what is this for?" And I've already moved yeah. on to another company because you know it's startups, and that's a problem because you you need to have a valid use for every bit of PI that you have in your system. And so it's it's this kind of this lack of documentation and knowledge that just brings about all these problems. And again, without without automated tooling, it's just I just don't think it's really feasible, which is kind of, again, where Ethica saw a yeah. place to solve a huge problem.
0: Probably also a little fear. Um, by that, I mean the time, the, the short times that I spent at these larger companies, there were <laughs> systems that were like, don't touch that. Yeah. That runs. <laughs> it's important. Nobody can make it. Nobody can fix it. We probably can't redeploy it. Yeah. Just don't touch it. And what if it, yeah. what if it has a bit of data? It, it cannot have right. a nullable foreign key relationship. It, no, exactly. that's a strong, exactly. and I want to remove it from this table, but but the thing that shall not be touched and no one can keep it running. It's my problem if I break it. I don't want that problem. Yeah, I could just stay. Yeah, That's yeah. a problem,
1: right? Yeah, but it definitely becomes a problem too. Um, things that to get forgotten about, things that people don't want to touch, things that they've lost, kind of the institutional knowledge of how it got there, exactly. and how to how to even get out of it if they wanted to. Um, like you said, a fear of of downstream breaking changes, right? So say say I come in and mask this username, uh, I have no idea what, if it's going to break some <laughs> analytics tool, if it's going to ruin our marketing department, like I have no idea, right?
0: Right. Um, Why so can't we send email anymore? Well, you see.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so it's also this, this difficulty of communicating across the organization. Yeah. Um, because oftentimes you'll get privacy engineers and they'll, they'll be embedded into a product, into a team, and, you know, theoretically, this was to talk across the entire org, but there's not like some centralized tool. There's no Zendesk of privacy where like, mm. okay, a whole organization uses this one tool and we can put in, you know, we can put in tickets or we can see what the state of privacy is across the organization, et cetera, things like that. There's nothing like that that really, that really existed. And so that's when we kind of realized, okay, we, we need to build some kind of platform where it can just be like a one-stop shop for everything privacy engineering related. So that's going to be engineers and privacy professionals. The engineers do their work. It all flows upwards into this tool. And then the compliance professionals can get all the information they need out of that tool and, and trust that it's correct because it's done in a programmatic way.
0: And it's automated and all the, good, all the stuff that you need, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Now really one final question before we jump into your platform, which solves many of these problems, what about AI? What if it learned something through PA, uh, personal information? And then you ask for your personal information. I'm like, you can't go and show me like the node in the neural network that has my information. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, it knows something
1: about it, right? (laughs) Correct. Yeah. So it is trained. There are different ways to deal with this. Um, So for instance, but like you said, you can never really know. So I mean, this is rabbit hole. So you you can use AI to generate fake PII and then train a model on fake generated PI, right? That's one way to right, do it. Right, right, right. But again, like you said, due to the very opaque nature of, and we're ta- like you said, we're talking about actual neural nets. We're not just talking about, you know, machine learning, statistical learning models. It's like mm. a neural network, that stuff becomes completely- Like Mid Journey, Dolly, yeah, exactly. these types of
0: things, yeah. Yeah, it
1: becomes truly a black box. Um, there's really there's really no way to know, right? And it, that comes yeah. down to regulators stepping in and again, just saying, hey, you cannot use yeah. AI in this model, regardless of the fact that eventually, <laughs> theoretically it would be obfuscated um you know that yeah. that comes down to governments to just say hey that's not that's not cool regardless
0: it's it's going to be so interesting as this evolves because if it was trained on that information it, it kind of is corrupted in a sense like it you can't take one person's information out you'd have to redo it, the model exactly. that's so much work yeah exactly. it's so tricky so you got to think of that up front so all right so let's talk about your project fides tell us tell us about fides
1: absolutely so fides is an open source um I guess, tool for, I, I, platform maybe is a better word for it, an open source platform for privacy engineering. And it's really designed towards those two personas that I've talked about, where you have privacy professionals, you have a compliance team, and they, they need an easier and a more accurate way to interface and work with the engineering team other than just calling cons Zoom calls to ask them, hey, what does this table do? Which again, is, is fine. Like that's their job. They're supposed to be doing that for protecting the company and protecting the privacy of the user's data. But then on the other side, you have engineers, and engineers, they probably don't want to be in these Zoom calls all the time. And they would probably much rather interface with privacy engineering in a way that's more familiar with them. So CI checks, command line tools, um, YAML files, like we mentioned. And so we thought, okay, we need, to, we need to build a tool that bridges that gap, right? Like we need to, we need to create an overlapping you know, set of tools that both sides will be happy with and that provide a good user experience for both sides. And so we have FIDES, right? So FIDES is it's primarily Python. Um, pretty much everything's in Python. We also have TypeScript for the front end. We use a lot of other open source stuff and uh, we're also on GitHub. So any anyone that wants to use this for themselves is totally able to, right? Because we kind of fundamentally, I think as a privacy company, it's important to believe that, that privacy is a human right. And so while we do have some paid features, the vast majority are, completely available like compliance is completely available for free um and open source so we don't think we should be saying you know hey your privacy is really important but only if you you pay us (laughs) but we think any any engineer should be able to come and look at our repo and and grab Fides and then start working off of it and be able to you know respect user privacy within their applications without having to really pay anything
0: right and since you brought it up um so Fides is this open source project Mm -hmm. that people can grab and it and Fulfill and automate much of what we've been talking about here, which is awesome. Correct. And your business model with Ethica is, I guess, what you would probably classify as open core, right? Like, mm-hmm. you yeah, sell,
1: that's how we refer to it internally. Is that
0: how you consider it? Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, open core. So we have, um, you know, internally we'll call it like Fides Core, right? Which is this repo, which is where a lot of the work. It's not like you'll see me most of my most of my PRs are in there. Um, mm-hmm. So so Fides Core is really what we build on, and then we have an additional what we call Fides Plus and um, and that is where you would get additional features that are really more like enterprise focused right so if you are like i said we're talking about those medium to very large enterprises where you have 100,000 tables and maybe you want a machine learning classifier to help you figure out what kind of data is in those tables then like that'd be a a paid feature but yeah, if so you like just you kind want of bootstrap
0: to, it like we have this data go look at it and tell me what you think about it something like that
1: yes exactly exactly okay. um, so it'll it'll walk databases tables you know fields, all that kind of stuff, and and say, hey, this is probably this type of data. This is probably this type of data. You know, obviously as accurate as, as accurate as we can get it. For the most part, things are going to be happening in open core. So in the, in the open core product, we are going to tackle the three major things that that we think are going to be required for any kind of privacy first application. So first, we're going to let people, and you can see for all the uh, YouTube viewers, video viewers on the right side here, we've got YAML files. So YAML files, are we going to define Kind of the the primitives you want to use for your application right so we have like data uses you have different data category types and you can define systems data sets kind of the building blocks of how you're going to describe and define your application from a privacy perspective uh, once you've done that right once we have all this information that you've given us this metadata you've given us about your application and your data sets we're then able to start uh, enforcing that automatically we're able to start building those data maps and telling you you know, hey, based on what you told us in your metadata annotations, this is everywhere your data lives, and this is the type of data that lives there. Um, additionally, based on those, we're going to say, hey, if you give us uh, an email, we have actually an execution engine with a bunch of different connectors. And we're going to say, okay, so you've told us you have a Postgres database here, and you have a Mongo database here, and we're looking for this email, and like these tables are going to be where the PAI is. So we, it'll automatically go and execute that. Right? Like it builds a. It's built on top of Dask, but we're kind of doing our own logic for some kind of directed acyclic graph, right? To go out and find that data and delete it in the right order um, or to retrieve it in the right order and then give it to user request. So we're really leveraging this power of using metadata to go ahead and automate all these tasks. Um, We'll also, more and more as we go into the future, we're trying to figure out ways to just automate it completely. So if we got to a point where engineers didn't even have to write these YAML files and we could just introspect the code and figure out quite, quite programmatically what was actually going on there, what we need to be concerned about. That's kind of where we want to get to and where we see the future of privacy being is, you know, especially with the incredible explosion of these large language models and things like ChatGPT and OpenAI, right? Doing some kind of natural language processing to allow us to understand what the code is doing without burdening developers with writing YAML is where we hope to get to eventually as well.
0: That's that's ambitious, but five years ago, I would have said, oh, that's insane. (laughs) Not anymore. You can give give these large language models Good chunks of code and they have a really deep understanding of what's happening. It's scary.
1: Right. It, it's yeah. So it, it's very impressive. So for now, um, we're still in, we're still in YAML land, uh, hopefully engineers are pretty comfortable there. We've been there for a while, I think with Kubernetes and all kinds of other tools. Um, but yeah, hopefully we just, we just want to keep lowering the barrier to entry for, for privacy compliance and for, you know, building applications that are private by design.
0: Right. So in the parlance of y'all's website, that's privacy checks as code and in continuous integration. The mm-hmm. two other things are programmatic subject requests and automated mm-hmm. data mapping. It sounds like you touched on the automated data mapping, but talk about the programmatic subject.
1: Yeah. Requests. So the programmatic subject request is what I mentioned briefly about kind of how we build a, an execution graph um for when those data when those data requests come in so again like i said we have that metadata we know where your data lives and what type of data it is so when a user says hey um here's my email please get rid of all the information you have about me uh, we're able to do that subject request programmatically because we know okay we're going to reach out to the salesforce api we're going to reach out to this postgres database users table where we know that data lives and we're going to do that for you automatically because like like i mentioned before there are plenty of relatively large and relatively small enterprises where there is someone on staff full time waiting for these emails to come in and then they say okay this email needs to get deleted and i've done this before so i'm, I'm not above this uh, when i was a data <laughs> engineer, we had to do this as well in snowflake right uh you know something comes in and they say okay i've got this email now i need to go to these 20 systems and run all these manual scripts and hope that i don't do it in the wrong order because like you said if there's like foreign key constraints you need to know about that um because if you do it in the wrong order, it's going to mess things up. So we basically all right. handle all that for you based on the yeah. metadata. Yeah.
0: Cannot complete <laughs> transaction. This thing. There's a foreign key constraint violation. C- Sorry. Correct.
1: Right. It's so like knowing oh, that and being able to figure that out. That stuff is important. So we we will handle that. And then, like I mentioned, with the data mapping. So this is this is really really important for compliance professionals because this is kind of like their bread and butter. Like they have to be able to produce these data maps to show compliance with GDPR, and that's going to show all the systems. You know, within their application within their enterprise and then what those systems are doing and with what kind of data and that's really really important and again we can generate all this based off of uh, the yaml file and for engineers the thing that we have is you know what we call privacy checks to ci code or privacy checks as code in ci where we're shifting privacy left kind of the same way that we saw with security right where where you went from okay we push our application out, and now a security <laughs> team is just going to play with the production version and figure out where there are problems.
0: <laughs> right. We're going to disregard security <laughs> and give it to you, and then you tell us how you broke it. it sure, yeah, basically. Things.
1: Yeah. It, but that's how a lot of companies treat privacy now, too, is it's like, we'll kind of figure it out in production, right? Like, ship it. We'll figure it out in production. And and now you see, oh, actually, there are really great static analysis tools for code, right? You have Sneak, uh, You have you know various other open source versions that were like, hey, let's we're going to scan your code before this commit even and are like are you leaking secrets have you stored anything that maybe shouldn't be and so we're trying to do that for privacy as well right so we're shifting privacy left and based on this metadata and based on the policies you defined we can say hey you you've added this new feature and you've you've annotated it in yaml and now you're stating that this like system is using you know user data for third party advertising and we're going to fail your ci check we're going to we're going to throw an error and say hey there's a violation here of this privacy policy that your company has because you define that you're using, you know, user data in this way, and that's gonna that's gonna break that. So again, that's just a way for to like short circuit that whole thing of okay, the engineers have shipped it, and now someone comes running back to you and says, hey, hey, why did you ship this? You're using, you know, personal data in a way you're not supposed to be. <laughs> We're trying to kind of get around that by saying, you know, pretty early on we'll know what's going on, and we can, you know, avoid pushes to main or deploys. don't pass these ci checks
0: okay so as an engineer writing software in this sort of guarded by this it is it's my i have to be proactive and state how i'm using data if i'm bringing new data into the system or does it somehow get
1: discovered no so that is that is currently what is required is it is up to the engineers to maintain that yaml um so we're working on ways to Automate that. And we actually have automated it for data sets because it's it's obviously much more programmatic. So like if you if you say, hey, yeah. here's my application database, here's my Postgres database, and I have, you know, I've annotated every field and all that kind of stuff. So we can automatically scan that. We say, hey, in your in your YAML definition, you've left out these two columns, right? Which you maybe you added in this PR, right? <clears throat> right. And so before that PR goes in, it's gonna remind you, hey, you need to, you need to add these two new columns to. Your dataset.yaml file, so that we know what's going on in those new database columns. Okay, uh, I,
0: can current... in, sorry, I can see how you might do a lot of. Sorry, I guess you might do a lot of introspection, like, mm-hmm. "Oh, I'm using SQL model, and here's the PyDantic thing describing the table, and here's the n- two new things." But then you could also, uh, you know, traverse the usages of that yeah. that those two columns and see where they're used elsewhere, and possibly, is there any API call that is like that data is being passed to, for example, and like. Oh, is it coming exactly. out of exactly? All right, you might be able to find the common integrations and see what's happening there. And...
1: Yeah, that's that's exactly what we're we're looking at next. With like I said, looking for looking for ways to automate this, right? So if we even if we just had a really basic dictionary of like, hey, these APIs are going to be related to storing or sending, you know, user data, right? And making sure that's annotated. Right. And like you said, maybe some of those like those code level annotations we we're using. Um, like if you think about, you know, Pydantic, right? Where you can have the field object and you can define, okay, here's a field, here's a here's the default, here's the, um, here's the description. And then if there was like another field that was like you know uh, privacy category, data category, whatever, data use mm-hmm. or data subject, something like that, that's absolutely something we've been looking at as well of kind of like the, the next step, because we know, again, this comes down to, this is still partially manual and therefore still potentially error prone. Um, so as long as we're scanning databases, that gives us some guarantee that, okay, there's probably not gonna be an entirely new you know, thing that we miss out on. Yeah. But yeah. if it's sending you like third, third party APIs or something, it, it would still be possible. So that's the, kind of the holy grail we're trying to get to is how do we just make this even easier for developers? How do we lower the barrier even further? Because we know this is still somewhat of a barrier to entry, but also hopefully still a, a huge step up from nothing.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's great. And you know if, if your job is to put together a system that can explain how it's using data and how that's enforced and how you're checking that, then something like this seems way better than code review. Uh, not instead yeah. of, but it's certainly a Cor- huge bonus. Correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah, correct. In addition to.
0: Yeah. So what we discussed here, this part feels like um, a GitHub action type of plugin as part of a CI step or, or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. What about the other one? So for example, the programmatic subject request that's going to cruise through the data and, and pull out the things, either show people what they got because they asked for it or delete it. Is that, like, like how does that run? Is that something you plug into your app? Is that a Mm -hmm. a service that just has access to your data?
1: Yeah, so that would be uh, something, so we actually do have a hosted version of FIDES, right? So for companies that don't want to bother kind of hosting their own, you know, a database and web server and things of that nature, we host it. But all this is stuff that you could self-host as well, like you can deploy in your own instance. So we have something called a privacy center, which again is is a, a thing that you spin up and you run on your side that actually would you then, would then link to, and that that is then what would direct the privacy requests to your backend FIDA's uh, web server instance. And then that's where you would go, and you would go, we call it the admin UI, right? Like the admin would log in, right. or the privacy person would log in, they would see, oh, these are all the requests that have come in, um, I can approve these, I can deny these, et cetera, et cetera, based on what's going on there, yeah. So we have the, kind of the pre-deployment of the code would be the, the checks in CI and writing all those YAML files. And then once you have deployed the application, we have these these runtime tools, like you said, these subject requests, and that's all stuff you would deploy. Um, most people would do it doing Docker containers that we you know build mm-hmm. and publish, and um, or you could just download and run it and run it directly. Uh, pip install. Cool.
0: Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So basically, there's a web app that you log into, and you can either self toast it, or that can be yours, and Correct. then it it goes and does its magic at that mm-hmm. part. Yeah. What about the data mapping bit?
1: Yeah, and the data mapping is something where you can either log into the web portal um, because it's going to be assumed that most privacy professionals um most of them have legal backgrounds are probably not going to want to mess with a command line tool um although we do have a command line tool right for the <laughs> engineers so if you're an engineer you can of course run a, a command line uh you know command that will give you the properly formatted um you know excel document or csv if you want it with all of the the rows in there that you need um, or again, like I said, if you're a privacy professional, you can log into the UI and download it that way um, and just have mm-hmm. it generate it. It'll it hit an endpoint and then it'll just give you the file back.
0: Okay. Uh, seems really neat. Um, where you talked a bit about this, like automated checks with looking at the code to try to reduce the need for explicitly stating how mm-hmm. things work. And you've got this ML higher order piece that will hunt down the, the private information. Where else are you? Where's the, what's the roadmap beyond those things? Where is it going?
1: Um, just as, as mean, much just, as you can
0: talk. Yeah, about it. I yeah. I mean, think.
1: just just more and more automation, right? Because again, if we if we look at the the ultimate goal is how do we just make privacy easier? Because it's not going away. It's only going to get more stringent. um The fines are only going to get bigger. I think it's interesting that that kind of GDPR fine list ended at you know May was it May or something March twenty twenty two. Since then, fines have actually only been. Only been getting bigger, right? They're basically making fines larger and larger and larger because they realize these tech companies just don't care for the most part. And so it's becoming more and more dangerous for people that aren't compliant. So we're like, okay, how do we just make this as easy as possible? Um, we know that there are people that probably don't want to maintain a bunch of YAML. So it's really just anything along those lines of how do we lower the barrier to entry for people that that want to be privacy compliant and use FIDA. So like you said, that's going to take the form of Probably more machine learning models, um, NLP models that are going to help us introspect the code. Uh, it could be things like the encode annotations, right? Where, like, okay, maybe there's now, you know, in, in PyDantic, there's now a field to add privacy information, or maybe in DBT, the analytics tool we talked about before, which I know is you know, used by a lot of companies. Uh, maybe we add metadata in there where people can now define what PI is being used in there, and then we can just kind of natively read from those files instead of having to have our own file format, things of that nature. Really, we're just looking at any possible place and getting feedback from people of where their pain points are and how we can help solve them.
0: Sure. Do you have any runtime things that you're thinking about? You've got the deploy stuff with the YAML, you've got mm-hmm. the on request stuff with the other things, but you know, we saw this JSON document come in. It has a yeah, yeah, yeah. called email, we don't know, you know?
1: Yeah, so interesting you ask that. So we, we have done some research and some proof of concepts. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with something called eBPF, um, no. It is EBF it is a FF way, at yeah, UPF, so it's a way to, I <clears> believe <throat> it's in Linux kernels, uh, to actually monitor the traffic um, going back and forth between uh, basically like over the network, right? And so mm-hmm. what we've been able to do is if you have an application running in Kubernetes, then we'll deploy something we called a system scanner, and it is runtime. And what it's doing is it'll actually watch the traffic that's happening across your application in Kubernetes, and it will come back to you and say hey you've got these systems they're talking to each other in this way Mm -hmm. and basically build a map kind of automatically so this is a really useful tool for if you're already running everything and you just want someone to tell you what you have running and kind of build the topography for you tell you all your systems tell you all your data sets tell you what the traffic looks like across your application then yes we are working on a tool that, that can do this
0: Okay. Yeah. This eBPF at eBPF.io looks nuts. Mm -hmm. Dynamically programmed the Linux kernel for efficient networking, observability, tracing, and security. And yeah, you could just say things like um, these are all the outbound connections, all of our systems are making. And uh, these IP addresses resolve too. We know this one is MailChimp. We know that one's Zendesk. What's this one? Correct.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So it's like, okay. (laughs) So we see that we're making a bunch of calls to MailChimp but you haven't You've never mentioned in your metadata that you're talking to Mailchimp. We now know that that's something we need to worry about, right? Um, right. So this is also something that we have. Uh, a yeah, little this is before. a little bit of what I was
0: thinking <laughs> about at runtime stuff. Like, yeah. like, can you watch the data flow and go, okay, this is inconsistent mm-hmm. with what you've told me is happening?
1: Yes, exactly. So you would, the way it works now is you would deploy our system scanner into your uh, environment, into your Kubernetes environment. It just it sits off as its own, you know. Set of nodes, and it does a thing, and then it'll after a certain amount of time, it'll just come back to you with, "Hey, this is what we this is what we saw," and it'll build you, it'll actually build the YAML files for you. Um, oh my goodness! Okay, and say this is this is kind of the definition of what we saw.
0: Very wild. All right, that's that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. Um, what else do I? Well, we're getting real short on time here. I guess maybe give us just the 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 quick report or thoughts on how the Open Core business model is going for you all. I. I feel like going through the life cycle of this podcast. Just had the eight-year anniversary for running the podcast. I've talked to a lot of people. Congratulations! (laughs) Yeah, thank you very much. Eight eight years ago, it was a lot of uh, we accept donations, and and mostly (laughs) to me, it looked like what the successful story for open source, mostly at least traditionally at that point, had been. I'm a maintainer or major participant of this important library. So I got a a really good paying job at (laughs) high-end tech company and high-end tech company gives me 20% time to work back on it. Right. Kind of like I've I've got a benefactor like employer uh, a Mm -hmm. little bit and it's moving more and more towards open core and other things. So I'd say both GitHub sponsors and and open core, and then incredibly some like really interesting VC stuff that's happening as well. those are not, um, Disjointed necessarily, right? Anyway, I think. Uh, long story short, I think the open core stuff people have really hit on with something that seems like it's kind of working for sustaining open source.
1: Yeah, I think we've seen the similar, very similar thing. I think that we are. It is really hard to walk that line, but kind of where we've come down on it is, you know, with the belief that privacy is a human right. All the tools required to be compliant need to be open source, kind of like full stop. Um, so, so for instance, like data mapping. That is a legal requirement. We're not going to put that behind the paywall. Um, handling those privacy requests by so building those, those graphs and being able to go execute the thing that is it's a requirement. You have to have that to be compliant. We're not going to paywall that. That's, that's the line that we're trying to ride is that, okay, anything that makes it super easy, uh, the machine learning stuff, the kind of runtime scanning, all that kind of more advanced stuff that's, that's more cutting edge, more R and D, then we'll probably put that on the, the paid offerings, right? But anything required to just get things running, because we know we actually have some very, very large companies that are using Fides purely open source. Like they don't, they have zero contract with us. They don't really have any contact with us. But Mm -hmm. we know they're using, we know they're using Fides uh, regularly to do their internal privacy. And that's, I think that's a a good place to be, right? If if three years ago when you had to implement GDPR stuff for TalkPython.fm and you stumbled across this tool that could just help you do that, and instead of two weeks, Mm -hmm. it was. Two or three days like for me that still feels like a huge win and there's yeah, still enough right. there's still enough enterprise customers who have 100,000 postgres tables that <laughs> want us to help them classify right there's still enough of those people out there to make it sustainable um and it's also a competitive advantage i think it's easier it's easy for people to just think that oh because it's open source you are you're you're kind of you know throwing away contracts you would have had otherwise we've had a lot of people engage with us because we're open source, right? Sure. And it's not, even, it's not even that they don't want to pay. They're just saying, hey, we like your paid offering, but the fact that you also are open source and you have an open core model that we can go look at and contribute to and, and put ideas into, that's really attractive for a lot of engineering teams. Um, because again, that's, that is one of our target markets.
0: Yeah. I think traditionally, looking back quite a ways, there was, I need a company and a private commercial software behind this. So I have a SLA and someone to sue when things mm. go wrong. And that's <laughs> still the you might be able to do that. You might be able to crush that company because they did you wrong, but you're still not yeah. going to get your your bug fixed and your software working any better because of it, right?
1: Right. And yeah, I think
0: right. people are starting to see open source as the escape hatch, right? Like I can work with a company mm-hmm. that has this premium offering on top of open source, but if worse come to worse, we'll just fork the repo and keep on yes. living. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's a way yeah, more, yeah, yeah. I think, <laughs> useful and constructive way than we're going to try to sue them to make them do our deal, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Talking about, you know, Privacy engineering is being about risk mitigation. Right? Having having an open source product is also quite a bit of risk mitigation. You know, it gives engineers time to get comfortable with it. Like you said, they can they can fork it. They can. You know, we're we're very open to uh, pull requests and you know people opening issues and feature requests and things of that nature. So it just it just really makes it uh, a much more pleasant process when um, you're just more transparent, and more open. People can go and look at the code themselves. Uh, you know, they can. If they re- report a bug, they can probably go see it getting fixed in real time, et cetera, things like that. Uh, it, I yeah. think it's definitely the way that I prefer working as an engineer. You know, I can't speak for management or anything, but um, it's definitely more fun to be able to engage with the community in that way.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm happy to see you all making, making your way in the world uh, based on your open source project. That's really cool. So I think we're about out of time to keep going on the subject. So we'll have to just wrap it up with the final two questions here. So, if you're going to write some code, work on Fides or something else Python based, what editor are you using these
1: days? Uh, it's, it's VS Code. I think I think it was pretty hardcore Vim until uh, I, I think at one point you had someone on your podcast that was evangelizing VS Code, and I went and tried it. And I was like, oh, I, I'm very obviously more productive now. So <laughs> I've stuck with VS Code ever <laughs> since then. Uh, that was Excellent. great. Thank you, for, uh, thank you for doing that. Yeah, you bet.
0: And uh, notable PyPI package.
1: Yeah, I'm going to give. Two here pretty quickly. Uh, so the first one is Knox. Mm-hmm. I believe I also learned about it from this podcast. Uh, this is I, <laughs> I do talk, talk Python driven development. Um, <laughs> anyway, so 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 we were using you know Make files before because I, I do a lot of work on the kind of dev experience DevOps side, and so I was a big Make file user. And when I basically heard, hey, it's like Make but more powerful and in Python, I immediately went and tried it out. And I think spent like the next three days just completely <laughs> rewriting our make file in Nox. And it's been great. This has been it has been so empowering for the other developers. Whereas before our make file was pretty archaic and it was pretty much only myself that would touch it. Uh, <laughs> now the, the other developers feel very comfortable jumping into Nox. Um and also being cross platform. I develop on Windows and literally everyone else at the company develops on on Mac. So it gives us a much more cross platform way to, you know, handle um scripting and building and yeah. things like
0: that. Yeah. Make files are quite different over on the Windows side. And,
1: yes. Yes. I, yeah. I learned this the hard way. It's like, you know, it was very, very often there was like, you know, it works on my machine, uh, <laughs> type of stuff going on there. Uh, and then yeah, finally just uh, another notable package is rich click. Uh, and that is, uh, people don't know rich is a package in Python that makes text output, like terminal output look very, very nice. And that is a nice wrapper on click that makes click look very, very, very nice. Uh, because it's wrapped in rich. So. Um, our CLI uses this, I think it looks great because of it. Um, so I'd also highly recommend that if you're, if you're into looking for a more modern feeling CLI, um, with a lot of, you know, flexibility and formatability.
0: So it gives you kind of automated colorized help text and usage text and and, um, like option. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you can, and you can customize that. Um, a really, really powerful thing also is that it will, it will understand markdown in your doc strings, right? So if you mm-hmm. want to right. get a little more fancy, um, it also has kind of its own language that you can use. Um, so yeah, it's it's been it's been really nice, because uh, I was feeling a little bit jealous. Our UI looks really nice, and our CLI didn't. And so I, I went and wanted to find something that would make the CLI look a little bit nice for engineers.
0: It seems like, uh eh, that's kind of superficial. Like, who cares? Color for your silly CLI. It makes a big difference. Like, the it, information bandwidth is so much it, higher.
1: It it's sense. high, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it makes, it really does make a huge difference.
0: Awesome. Well, I think we're going to leave it here uh, with this, but Thomas, thanks for being on the show. It's been really great to have you here and yeah, a lot of fun thanks to talk me. privacy. Yeah. Good luck with the project. It looks great.
1: Thank you. Talk to
0: you later. Yeah. Yeah. See you later. This has been another episode of Talk Python to Me. Thank you to our sponsors. Be sure to check out what they're offering, it really helps support the show. Don't miss out on the opportunity to level up your startup game with Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Get over six figures in benefits, including Azure credits and access to OpenAI's APIs. Apply now at talkpython.fm slash foundershub. Take some stress out of your life. Get notified immediately about errors and performance issues in your web or mobile applications with Sentry. Just visit talkpython.fm slash Sentry and get started for free. And be sure to use the promo code talkpython, all one word. Want to level up your Python? We have one of the largest catalogs of Python video courses over at TalkPython. Our content ranges from true beginners to deeply advanced topics like memory and async. And best of all, there's not a subscription in sight. Check it out for yourself at training.talkpython.fm. Be sure to subscribe to the show, open your favorite podcast app, and search for Python. We should be right at the top. You can also find the iTunes feed at slash iTunes, the Google Play feed at slash play, and the direct RSS feed at slash RSS on TalkPython.fm. We're live streaming most of our recordings these days. If you want to be part of the show and have your comments featured on the air, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at talkpython.fm YouTube. This is your host, Michael Kennedy. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Now get out there and write some Python code.